Hello and welcome to the Week in Review. I'm joined as always by SD Wicket. Sam, how are you? Good, Michael. How are you? I'm marvellous, thank you. And by Luke Perry. Luke, how are you today? I am very well, Curzon. How are you? I hear you haven't had much sleep. <laughs> no, it's been a bit of a busy week. I've had a year, as I think most recent graduates have, of uh, uh, small chunks but largely little luck in the job market, and then everything seems to be popping up, uh, popping up now at once. Uh, so we'll we'll see how that goes on. But anyway, I'm I'm uh, still here for now and talking about work as it happens, uh, which is my story for the week. And the talk, I think we, we've mentioned this in one of our previous episodes briefly, um, but the news has really been ramping up on it, especially as in some areas across the world, people have been uh, allegedly returning to work, um, but not in the normal sense where people go to offices um, or to buildings with, with other co-workers to carry out their working day. But instead, increasingly, people are working from home. They're calling this hybrid working, where people work from home at least some of the time. How much of the time isn't really determined. It might be the majority of the time, in which case going to the office becomes a rarity. IWG, formerly uh, Regis, says that hybrid working is going to become the norm in uh, the coming years. I think some of the reason behind this is that um, obviously companies have been well hit by the uh, lockdowns and coronavirus over the last year and have realised as they've sent their workers to home that actually a lot of people can carry out work whilst they are still at home and that the cost of office space might be wasted in this sense. And since most modern businesses care only about profits rather than about the quality of their products, um, this sort of attitude might take hold in a lot of industries in business. Now, Sam, what do you think about this? I mean, we can talk about productivity and um, some of the examples of where people aren't fully returning to work in a moment, but what is your sort of initial reaction to the idea of having a job and spending your whole time at home? Well, um, it just shows sort of where the, the priorities of major, major corporations do lie, where it's with their own bottom line. Um, yeah, it makes, makes sense for them fiscally to you know do away with the office and have everyone just zoom in um what what that doesn't account for is is um worker well-being if you're and if the last year of is anything it's that living in your home working in your home doing everything from your home isn't healthy you know mentally um you're going to be people are more uh, atomized anxious lonely stressed but, but but of course, you know the, the companies are looking at it as if as if they can just say, well, we see that, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's over this, or we lay, or we lay people off. So um, again, yeah, it's just it's a company thing. And then, as you said um, in your introduction, Michael, the uh, the thing that I find most pernicious about all of this stuff is the idea of it being set in a, as a new normal. That's something we have to be really really skeptical of. Um, this this idea, this what I think is the erroneous idea, is, was that our our way of life as like everyday people before the virus was somehow grossly unsustainable. It wasn't. It was the behaviour of these corporates that was unsustainable, not us, the people. And now, you know, we're we're having this this again this new normal thrown upon us when it, when our way of life before was fine. Luke, you work at the 
the uh, well-established and much-loved food establishment, McDonald's. You, of course, won't be flipping the burgers from home, but um, for those who do work in offices, what are your initial reactions, uh, Sam, to the, to the news that a lot of workers just might not be returning to the office? Oh, I think that, yes, while it will be popular with um, businesses due to cost, it will also be popular for employees for the same reason. Now, um, the modern economy functions around cities now and commuter towns, and um, men, millions of employees get up at the crack of dawn, go, go to a packed train station, go into the city centre, and then emerge 12 hours later, arrive and at the dead of night and the cycle repeats. I think that certainly takes a psychological toll and many workers will be thankful to, to get rid of that. So it's a symptom of what we've seen with these lockdowns. Yes, while it's popular with the elite, it's also popular with the ordinary citizen. Yeah, well, just to be a bit specific about this, I mean, one of the areas where people have been uh, to an extent returning to work is Manhattan, New York. But a, a report earlier this week in the Financial Times showed that only 10% of Manhattan's office workers, and that accounts for about a million people, have actually returned to the office. Now you might think lockdowns are still ongoing, we're still in a very uncertain times, but a lot of businesses have expected that even by September, only 45% of office workers will have returned to the office. And that in the long term, around 56%, so over half of workers, could still be expected to spend at least some of the time working from home. So I think, as you said, Sam, this isn't just a matter of, um, to, to steal your podcast title, our very current predicament, but it's actually looking to the future, um, to the long term, to what might become the new normal. I mean, speaking from a personal sense, I've told you about my week, and I know it's quite a, a small and unimportant example, but um, yesterday I had as part of an application to write a few very short written exercises. But because I'd spent the whole day inside on the laptop working from early morning until evening, my mind was just completely blank on things that I've been writing about for, for nearly five years now, uh, much longer, where something like this should be really easy. I could not do anything. And it only struck me this morning that had I gone for a walk or taken a proper break and done something different, um, I might have had a bit of a better chance of getting the work done. But being cramped, in the same room where um, once I finish work, I then make my dinner, sit down and eat, um, isn't, it seems, uh, the proper way of engaging the mind to be able to actually get down and do the work which needs to be done. Mm. Well, you, you used, um, you used um, Manhattan as an, as an example, and it's, it's another one of those weird things where... Um, the attitude towards this uh, this predicament it, it falls on either side of, of the the cultural divide. You have, yeah, states like California and New York who are have among the toughest lockdowns in the world, especially in California. Um, then you have like Florida and Texas and Mississippi where they've they've removed basically all restrictions. Um, so yeah, the the case of of Manhattan's interesting, but um, I think to get the full picture, we need to look at case of a place where the restrictions are, are virtually not there anymore mm. I mean we've talked about we've talked about the the cost element but of course one of the one of the biggest questions and something which I suppose might give us a little bit of hope on this area is that whilst there is of course a, a saved cost from not owning office space there is the added cost of uh, the reported 
reduce productivity from people working at home. I mean, the Mail reported uh, last October that out of uh, businesses which have been keeping a tally on productivity over the last year, pretty much a quarter said that they'd seen uh, serious levels of reduced productivity because of people working from home rather than um, in the offices and all the, the added stresses that that gives. So uh, we, can, we can perhaps hold that negative story as a, a small ray of hope that things might return to normal at some point. But I suppose, as with all these things, we can't well, hold it, on. It, it's like say what I was saying at the start. These companies, they only really care about their, their bottom line. So I mean, it, if if that's if, that, if that's being hurt, then then that they'll move the earth and stars to 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 get you know that back. I mean, the, the, it is it will be um, a, a not a very strong job market, and there'll be many people unemployed. So these employees who have low productive levels at work, they'll they'll easily be replaced. Mm. The drop of a hat. Mm. So you're saying there that that. Um, the, well, there'll the be few jobs that... and many people unemployed. So, and corporations nowadays, of course, only care about money, and low um, productivity at the home. Those employers will be um, cut through. Mm. Mm. What I no, find no. is that as as social animals, we we generally mirror what's happening around us with other people, right? It's why, like in its most extreme, like a, a mob can be so powerful because people just kind of get sucked into that kind of um, that that sort of milieu of behavior and it's, it's the same in an office like, i i found at the uh, the start of the pandemic when i was still working um <clears throat> the just the, the the massive gap between how, how my productivity and my sort of drive to work naturally was hit awfully when i was working from home yeah whereas, whereas in the office in the office you have people around you can you can look at you can chat to there's no kind of Whereas today, you know, you send an email and you it could be it could take ten minutes, it could take an hour to to get it back. Whereas in an office, you can just go and ask someone. You know, it's it's a lot um it's a lot more fluid the way you communicate in the office, and and it it sounds like nothing, but it's much it's much better for for um for for, for working as well, of course, for for socialising beyond that. Oh. It's where a lot of people uh, meet lifelong friends, even relationships. Um, it's very difficult to do that just in the home unless somebody's already there. Not many people just stumble through the door. Right, and, um, and, and that's the thing is that the last time I, I was in the office I, I used to work in, uh, we, we had you know, uh, plexiglass booths around our desks. No one was allowed to come and sit up with us. Because you, know, you know it's normal, someone will come sit on your desk and chat to you for five minutes while, while you're working or, or, or about work, but that was, that was strictly allowed. So the social life in the office was um was wasn't there i had a similar situation at um at my workplace of course i work in a kitchen and um we usually are always bumping into each other so of course not very covid secure at first instance and uh we'd often we'd often have a chat to each other exchange words but um because of covid restrictions and standing to two meters apart we're sort of trapped in our own little station mm. and there's just not that social feeling anymore mm. another area of the economy which is being hit at this time is the arts moving away from offices slightly and it was reported earlier today that um the government last year promised a, a recovery fund it called it 
to the arts and heritage sectors. Uh, but so far out of the about 840 million, I believe, which have been supposed to have been spent by this time, only 400 million has gone out. I mean, last, last month, a uh, uh, planned new venue in London to host 2,000 seats was scrapped because of the lockdown. The Birmingham Symphony Hall loop, which we both know well, having studied in Birmingham, had to sack a load of its staff last year because of lack of funding. Um, of course, the, the reaction which should come back on this is, why not just scrap the fund altogether and allow the sector to reopen? allow people to continue going to venues and to listen to music because work is one part of life, but surely more important are the, the sort of social occasions which break up the days and, um, and give us something to aspire for and to, to inspire us. Um, but it seems that if, you know, with this fund being uh, only very slowly rolled out, not, not as quick as was initially pledged, um, and it looking very unlikely that the arts are going to open anytime soon. Mm. I think the likelihood that as much of it will be about when we are out of this is looking slimmer. The, this, this, everything we've discussed goes back to one core thing, which is a story that, that actually formally broke this week, but we, 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 we had an inkling for a while, which is that the, the cabinet has never been briefed on the um, collateral damage of lockdowns. Mm. Yeah, um, the 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 approach to tackling the virus is is viewed purely as get the get the infection rate down. That's it. No, 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 nothing else matters to to Sage or, or to the government. It's just that, and yeah, they 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 have never been shown um, you know data on what happens when you lock down a modern service economy and which obviously the result isn't good but um it's a it's into last week where the, the 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 disconnect between us and them is now so great that uh they they have our lives by by the by the figurative throat and there's almost nothing we can do about it because they don't know what they're doing hmm. i mean it's not only just in the economy and in the arts and other things like this where the collateral damage hasn't been considered but even within health the whole idea that this was all about saving the nhs is a joke we now realize um, it was reported this week that hospital waiting lists have reached 4.6 million people that's people waiting to begin treatment mm. an incredible number massively above uh, that which it would usually be at a time like this um, and the the impact of that is I think the problem is, is that, of course, it's it's easy. We say it's easy, but it's done incorrectly. But it, it, it figuratively is easy to measure the number of COVID deaths. We know it's exaggerated, but still, there's a definite between death, uh, between being dead and being alive. However, it's more difficult to be able to account for the number of deaths from from other causes, especially as whether or not that's been caused by people waiting too long in waiting lists. The number of people who are in a waiting list of over a year has, has reached a new high as well, which is, is just mm. unbelievable, really, in a country with, which is supposed to have uh, one of the greatest health services in the world. Um, so the, these things are all, all difficult to measure, and it's, it's hard to tell what the precise cause of them are, which I think is partly why the focus instead has been on COVID and COVID alone. Mm. Yeah. It's all part of this carpet bombing against the virus. It's, it's 
zero COVID, mm. um, a goal which I would argue has been around since the beginning. And we are um, not two weeks shy of um, the first year anniversary or three weeks to flatten the curve. Mm. So, so you're wondering how um, prolonged it, is this going to be? Well, this, how this... much damage are they going to inflict? How much? How many patients are they going to keep on the hospital rolls? A never-growing number of them. This is this is this is what <clears throat> this is what zero COVID looks like. It's recurring lockdowns ad infinitum. Yeah. It's 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 an it's an unending life of you know un, like uncertainty and paranoia around whether or not the state's going to put you under house arrest for a month. I think the paranoia is the, the big part of it. I mean, I, I'm sure we've, we've all been walking down the street without a mask and then someone wearing a mask diverts our way but walks straight into the road with oncoming traffic. It's a very bizarre sight to see. Mm. Now, talking of anniversaries, it's almost, um, or perhaps, well, no, almost a, a year anniversary as well since the, the riots which took hold of the news last year uh, following the, the murder of, of George, uh, George Floyd by a police officer in America. Um, Luke, you've been looking at the story of the, the jury trial following this case, and I've uh, got an interesting story to tell us about this week. So, so yeah, um, Derek Chauvin, the police officer who uh, knelt on George Floyd's neck, um, he is to be put on trial very soon, and currently there's a three-week process um, to select the jury who will serve in the courtroom. Now, um, this is this case is is massive. It's the O.J. Simpson trial. It's um, Bush versus Gore. It's it's up there on the um, <laughs> American court history. And um, what's interesting about the case is that um, some of the jury, some potential jurors, have admitted that they fear serving on the trial because um, the mob will not like the outcome of the of the verdict. And uh, so um, Chauvin has been charged with second-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, and he's just recently been charged with third-degree murder. And he could serve between 25 to 40 years in prison. And uh, the, the courthouse has been, um, it's like DC, it's full of armed guards and barbed wire fences. So um, the US expects trouble, and um, history has shown this is exactly what happens, especially with the Rodney King case where officers were seen on video beating a black man, they were acquitted, that caused riots. And um, a similar thing could happen here because the autopsy report of George Floyd said that he had drugs in his system, so methamphetamine for instance. So there's yeah. a potential, a likelihood that the jury could acquit him on the evidence. And um, this uh, case is between two Americas. One of course is BLM, the one that has no trust in the US justice system thinks it's institutionally racist and the other side which still has trust in, in the US justice system and uh, jurors have been quizzed on their support for BLM and the, the American police system and it's just setting the stage for it being seen as partisanship and I cannot see this ending well at all. Yeah I mean the, the, the thing with the jury is, is the only way to even remotely guarantee impartiality would be to have a, a, a completely apolitical jury. But I mean, that's got to be virtually impossible to find, especially after the year America's had. And you, you mentioned um, the autopsy of, of Mr. Floyd, which showed not only um, fentanyl in his bloodstream, but that he was COVID positive. As you said, Luke, that, that could very easily lead to um, acquittal for, the, for the, the, the officer in question, which if that is the case, then... Um, I really fear will happen in, in America after that. 
Well, when when events took place last year, it wasn't just America which responded, but the world. How likely is it you think if this is speculative, but if Shevin were were acquitted, Luke, as you say, is possible? How likely is it that um, a negative response will be felt not only in America, but also in Britain, across Europe, uh, and, and other countries across the world? Well, I think that it it, it would be certain because. Well, for, for some reason, Black Lives Matter was not just in Minnesota. It, w- it was a global event. And we, for the last summer's riots, we'll be having the same conditions this year, a lockdown country where everyone's bored. And there's, um, and now we know that the, the authorities will not clamp down hard on BLM protesters. It's just a second wave of riots will happen if Chauvin is acquitted. And that, that's, that's a really dangerous thing, is that? the jury are going into the trial knowing that a not guilty verdict could lead to something awful happening um which yeah it shows yeah it's just just, this trial is gonna be virtually impossible to um to come to any sort of reasonable conclusion because the emotions and the the uh the fear of violence is so high that it just could completely derail the entire process part of the jury feel threatened they're terrified of serving and I, and I wonder how many of the, of the potential jurors who said they support black lives matter actually don't mm. i'm curious yeah because nowadays we, we can't air our views in public in fear of the mob so i don't know how justice can be done mm. well one major difference from last year when when the the, the riots erupted and this year is america's president the uh, as the media would say, the divisive Trump has been swapped by the uniting Biden. Would a Biden presidency, as we now have, calm the nerves if an acquittal were, elite, uh, were, were reached? Sorry, if that was the outcome. Uh, sorry, sorry, Luke. If I can just, if I can just get into this one, this one first. Uh, I know it's your segment, but um, well, if 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 the the <clears throat> the the loons in Portland or anything to go by, they're not big fans of Biden. Um, they they held a riot on inauguration day with signs saying, you know, F Biden, we want revenge. Um, and yeah, Trump was a convenient bogeyman, and obviously there isn't the same rhetoric around Biden, but these people's ultimate... Um, I, I'm referring to, to groups like Antifa here who are known for, you know, usurping protests and, and, and causing havoc at them. Um, their enemy is the American states. It's not, it's not you know, the Democrat Party or the GOP or any sort of individual in power. It's the, it's the entire American state. I, th- I think a change in president will mean that um, Democrat governors will um, be uh, more inclined to use law enforcement to keep order. Otherwise, it will look very bad on the current administration. Last summer, they didn't. They just let BLM run havoc to um, discredit Trump. But I, I think... Um, well, we've talked about the the um, the Biden presidency just being an anti-Trump coalition. Trump has gone, but the problem of systemic racism for these people is still there. I think Biden will <coughs> have a lot on his hands this part these um, coming weeks. Mm. Now, obviously, we've talked about the, the um, possible outcome of an acquittal, but what about if the opposite is the case? Of course, last year's riots were were met by a response. Uh, people who didn't agree with the, the narrative of Black Lives Matter. Do you think there'd be a negative reaction if uh, Chauvin were, were, was, you know, given a, a serious punishment or would that end of the stick, you think, 
uh, receive more of a cool uh, response? Well, for, for people whose narrative is that George Floyd um, overdosed, I think that there'll be um, certainly negative reactions, certainly questions asked of, con asked of Congress and GOP congressmen, but I don't think it will devolve into full-scale riots. No, I don't think we'll have a repeat of the Capitol Hill building, no. Capitol Hill riots. Also, it's because the, um, the, the Democrat worldview is in cultural ascendancy so, so so they can go out and protest and that and it can turn violent and the um you know the the media class will just cut will just cover their asses um the the american right don't have the same privilege i mean we saw the 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 response to um what happened at, at the capitol as, as being you know like Robespierre with a guillotine was rolling around trying to like you know find you know people to behead um the narrative is completely dominated by democrat sympathizers so um and, and i think after capitol hill the american right know that and they understand that if you're not if you're not in the cultural um ascendancy then you th there's n nothing to be gained from protesting um so yeah, I think the only the, the it's, it's like it's like um, in DC on on election day that they were boarding up shops in downtown DC, but they weren't boarding them up because they thought people in red hats were gonna were gonna go smash them up. They were boarding them up in case Trump won. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I I I highly doubt that conservatives will go out and protest after this. Um, Dissent will just remain under the surface. It's been another thing of of, of it's more dangerous in the long term. I would argue. Yeah, it's, it's been another thing of just completely rejecting the Democrat paradigm and not recognizing it. Well, I think on the on the idea of a Democrat paradigm, and as you say, some cultural ascendancy, we'll talk um, about our last topic today, which is about the the modern sin of reading books. What have you been reading about today? Yes, um, and before before we get into the segment, let me just ask a, a question to you guys. Would would either of you apologise for reading a book? Probably not. I mean, I've read the Communist Manifesto for my dissertation. That's probably one of the, the worst pieces of literature which has inspired tyrants the world over. <laughs> Curzon, how are you? Uh, no, not that springs to mind. Hmm. So, yeah, so... so, so Already, we've established the, the problem here, which is that um, the books that one reads are no one else's business apart from their own, um, unless you then go out and commit a heinous act of violence that is directly inspired by it. But I digress. The story I had this week is um, Winston Marshall, who, um, who whose name I, I don't think many many people really knew before this this debacle, but he is the guitarist of the. Um, uh, slightly tepid band Mumford and Sons. Um, oh, that. <laughs> good one, Mike. Um, who, um, yeah, who, he, I had a look at his Twitter before this, and he was, you know, he tweets a lot about, about Hong Kong, and he sort of, he seems quite politically active, but in a way that isn't uh, utterly tethered to the uh, the contemporary culture war. Anyway, um, he, he reads a book, uh, the book uh, Unmasked by Andy No, which is basically an, an expose of the um, the violent radicals in uh, American urban areas known as Antifa. Um, 
the book is, you know, it's again, as we're saying uh, before we we're recording, uh, in in the same vein as you know uh, Douglas Murray or Ben Shapiro, where it's not a you know groundbreaking piece of political theory. It's 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 very sort of entry level. But Andy Noah is someone who's dedicated his entire um, adult career to exposing this, you know, this violent mob who have taken over his hometown and forced him out of not only Portland but the U.S. Um, he's he's now he's now he now lives in England on 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 fear for for his safety. Um, but anyway, he he wrote this book called Unmasked, and uh, Winston Marshall read it and gave it you know a little on Twitter. The the response was so unhinged and so hysterical that um, this guy was forced to apologize for causing offense, um, even though I, I, I don't think that anything's even stuck on Anthony, apart from the fact that he, he tweets people's names and faces who go out and get involved in, in violent protests. Um, but yeah, but, but, um, but I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm babbling here, but the core issue here is that um, if you're a celebrity, if you're in that kind of, that, that loose defined cult, you have to toe the line or else. So I can take two things from this case. The number one is that the books you read are an extension of yourself. They're um, a show of your identity, more, more so than the clothes you wear or the food you eat. And the second thing is how um, he, he apologised, but um, it's how cancel culture is now spun. It's spun in a way which says that... Um, those guilty of um, deviating from the, the normal narrative, it's their volunt voluntary choice to leave the profession. Ooh. And I can, can quote him here, he's taking time away from the band to examine my blind spots. I mean, not highlighting that there's actually a hand on his shoulder and fists ready to clamp down on his cranium. And I think the third thing is that it's sort of the pathologization of dissent. It's if you deviate from the cultural narrative, there's something wrong with you. You have a mental illness that must be re-educated out of you. And it's, it's very Stalinist in a way. Yeah, so I've, I've got his, his, his apology here. It's it's really sad to read because it's so groveling. It's just, it's, it's him, you know, begging for um, readmittance to the, 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 the club. And um, so it opens with, over the past few days, I've come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed. What, what pain? This is, this, this, this the, 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 the sole target of this book is violent armed radicals who, have been causing havoc in, in America for, for not only month, not only the last year, but for basically the entire Trump presidency. I mean, it's it's not exactly Mein Kampf he, he's reading either. Right. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's. I mean, Andy said that he tweeted that uh, I grieve for those who are made to suffer because they dare to read my book or even talk to me, and uh, on uh, Amazon currently, um, 92 percent of the reviews are five stars. So it's not exactly outside the status quo, the book Marshall supporting. It's just against the elite, against the elitist narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And if you, if you go against the, that, that narrative, they'll dig up anything that they can find on you. And if they can't find anything, then they'll, they'll make things up. The, the, idea, the idea that Andy No, uh, a, a gay Vietnamese journalist, is some sort of you know, hard right fascist because he... Over, over his life, he's witnessed these thugs take over his hometown is, is utterly ludicrous. And again, it's, if you go against the, 
the cultural regime, they will ruin your life because that is what the tyranny of, the, of this century does. It doesn't kill you. There's no firing squads. There's no, you know, banish in the middle of the night. That They just ruin your life with slander. So, yes, well, um, it, it seems that every week we have this story. We, we have a, it's a tradition now. We end the week in review with a story on cancel culture. And um, a subsection of this continuation is that um, people always apologise. Mm. And this um, reminds me of what a, Nietzsche said about a post-Christian West, where we have these ideas about sin, but not the um, remedies for that of forgiveness and salvation. So there's, um, yes, that this tyranny won't kill you, it'll make you unemployed, but there's also no escape from this tyranny. It's just the top shaming culture and with social media and with everyone's a public figure now, all our lives are on display 24-7, probably recorded at parties before. So um, it's, it's Big Brother on steroids. Michael, would, would, you, would you fire either of us if, if, if we were being cancelled? Uh, well, I'd have other reasons to do so, but no. We've had writers in the past who have, who have led, to, um, led to a certain number of messages asking for uh, or demanding rather removal. And in fact, Luke, I've, I forgot about this. I've come to your, uh, your rescuers in a former position in a society at Birmingham where people, I was sent an official letter warning to, to uh, bar you from the society, but no, I. For whatever reason, I stood by his side. Because you're a deviler. <laughs> it's probably because we had the, the same ideas, but yeah, Curzon did defend me, and I, I thank him forever for that. Well, well, I think the point the point there, as in in most other areas regarding uh, cancellation, actually, was that when I was approached, I I responded by saying it was about an event which happened. Uh, and uh, some words which Luke said were uh, considered to be um, not acceptable. So I responded by pointing out, well, actually, I remember and have other people who remember some things you said that night, which other people might not find particularly acceptable, some including swearing, some insults, some just not really necessary. Um, and from that point on, the, the criticism buckled. And I think we can use that in most cases of cancellation. I mean, we've talked about this before. The universities which change their names uh, because it says CAS in it relating to uh, previous slave owners or people who worked with, um, with uh, the slave trade in, in some sense are today ha um, holding very close ties with China. Some of them are opening institutions, not only in China, but in the specific areas where there is the great abuse of people on a hideously large scale, something which we believe uh, for some silly reason is something that's in the past now that we're in a modern, progressive, colourful age. But actually, it's not in the past. It still takes place. And the same people, as I say, who complain about poor treatment or about um, this ism or that ism or this phobe or that phobe um, are very happy with the same sorts of, of uh, mistreatment taking place in the world right now. Hmm. Well, the one thing you should never, ever do is apologise. If, if Winston Marshall had come out and said, I'm not apologising, I read a book, screw you. I mean, it, sure, it, 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 it may have brought an end to his time in the, you know, in, in the limelight, which to be fair, I mean, Mumble and Sons haven't really been that relevant for a <laughs> several several years now. Um, 
Yeah, he'd be doing us all a favour. It's <laughs> all a favour, but so he'd be doing himself a favour. I mean, well, he's, still out, he's still been kicked out of the band, but he would have left with his dignity. He'd have left with his soul. Right. But I mean, now he's just signed his person away. Yeah, yeah. Make yeah. apology. It's like, do you, do you think Marshall's been convinced by all this? Do you think, oh, I've been sacked from my band? Oh, I've, I've changed my beliefs now. I've undergone re-education. I'm now a different person. No, no, no. If anything, the, the ideas he's picked up from the ghost book are just reinforced. Of, um, but also, <coughs> I, I think it's, it's going to be really bad for him personally and emotionally because I think he knows what's, ha what's happened to him is, is, is wrong. He knows he's been targeted and, and, and smeared and threatened with scandal and threatened with cancellation and has then backed down. I mean, um, that, that's, that's going to do a real number on your, on your, um, your sort of self-worth and self-confidence. You know, so something like, like that is indicative of, of a massive surrender of um, personal autonomy where you can't even read a book you like, but uh, you can't even read a, read a book you like. Well, never mind a book that you like. Um, I understand in this sense, I think he, what did he do, tweet a picture to say this was a good book, something like that. Yeah. But, but regardless of that, in, in general senses, people are sort of um, frowned upon for reading certain books, this being one of them. And I think perhaps also whether they like them or not, there are some books which people would rather just didn't exist. Whereas surely it's a much better situation uh, for everybody's bookshelf to be filled by just as many books that they don't actually agree with um, as those that they do agree with. It's the whole way that, uh, that um, societal discourse takes place is through the coming to understand um, the opinions of those who um, otherwise become your enemy. Yeah, I mean, on, on mine, I've got, I've got Chomsky, Althusser, but also Scruton and Burke. You know, it's 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 a, it's, it's a bit hard not to hold Chomsky. Every it's a, I always find this annoying. Every Waterstones you go to, you go to the politics section, you see at least fifty books by Chomsky, and that's round about it. <laughs> you then carry on with your day. Uh, there you are. That's a small why, why America sucks, Volume Ten. Yeah. Other than that, I uh, I can't wait until it reopens. <laughs> well, I mean the. Um, Back onto the Andy No thing, um, it wasn't just, you know, this isn't the only case of it. I mean, there's been bookstores in Portland that have been attacked and, and vandalized because and threatened to into not selling the book. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, ju it's just like, a, like the Streisand effect, where if you try and suppress something, it's going to do well. It's like the same happened with, with Paul Embury's book, same happened with Andy No's book. Um, it's almost as if people trying to burn your book, so to speak, is, is a remarkably lucrative form of free advertising well it's like the forbidden well, fruit isn't it you're yeah. wondering what's in there yeah well i was hoping to lead on to another story but the idea of forbidden fruit makes that a bit sour now but still we'll go on piers morgan um <laughs> is one of those uh who about whom it could be said uh, that suppression uh, leads to somebody doing well now it's been a pretty big story over the week i must say when when i saw him walk off the uh, Good Morning Britain show. I found it embarrassing, um, expected, I suppose, from Piers, but still very disappointing um, in that he's someone who gives a lot in an interview, isn't scared to open his mouth, perhaps more than most of us would or should. Uh, but when he was giving it back a little bit, he said, no, not doing that, I'm off, which I thought was slightly childish. But regardless, the way in which he then left the programme seems to me to be a little more worrying. There's suggestions 
not only that he was you know asked to apologize and that he refused and so stepped down but also that uh, Meghan Markle who uh, about whom his rant uh, was about um, actually stepped in criticized Piers's performance officially in a in a complaint um, and that that might have had something to do with him stepping down as well Luke what do you think about this whole sordid affair well we've had well, this week we were able to talk about the two sides of the coin, those that apologise, those who don't, and we find out they end up in the same place. But I think Piers Morgan's, well, he, he was acting more like a journalist with the Meghan Markle story than most other people I've seen. He was actually questioning what she said rather than taking it for granted, which, considering Meghan's now the new sacred golden calf of the media, it's uh, very, very brave, even if he is wealthy and got good connections. Um, the um, this is slightly relevant, but the 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 part of the whole interview debacle that I find the most distressing is that um, well, the the idea that this was just an innocent way of you know them getting their story out is is bull, right? This is this this is I mean this is the 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 conclusion of um, Harry and Meghan picking the culture wars over their own duties, you know? Um, and this interview, I mean, it, it, it could have so easily just been about their lives and, you know, the things that happened, but it, it turned into a, a scorched earth thing with the, with the royal family. And now, whether they meant to or not is irrelevant. What they have done is they've sounded the siren and they've, 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 they've ordered uh, progressive America um, in its, in, you know, in, in it, with, its, with its global reach to, target uh, our monarchy, the, the, the defining institution of this country, you know, and, and uh, th th this is, this is going to be a story to, to watch over the next couple of years into the next coronation where the attempt to, you know, cancel the, the royal family is going to be ramped up. Yeah, I think that's one of the important points that it, we, we've been talking uh, at times about the, the difficulty of picturing the royal family uh, as it moves from from the current monarch to the next and may that be in a long time but i think this adds even further questions um it's going to be a very difficult transition uh, one which it wouldn't be <laughs> wholly unlikely to see not actually fully take place um but that's something we'll report on closer to the time luke have you got anything to add on this story no, it's just what well, repeat of what, what we said before. The monarchy is not going to go. It's just going to cave into the um, demands of um, systemic race hustlers and all, all these um, just to align themselves with Meghan and Harry. The monarchy won't be destroyed. It will just be radically altered. Well, there was a there was a slight pushback from from William this week, and 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 that was very nice to see. Um, and uh, I mean, I hope I hope that this episode wakes the royal family up, which is that they, because they they've been sort of slowly, incrementally skirting into um, what can be described as as, as political stances <clears throat> over the last couple of years, and I, I really hope this this knocks them back into their apolitical and detached, duty-driven um, conception of what they are to do with the privilege that the, that they're afforded. And I hope this is a um, yeah a big alarm bell to them quite well on that message of of hope let's uh let's 
call the bell on the week in review this time and thank you for listening and we'll join you again next week thanks very much cheers bye bye